Podcast. I'm the Holly Jolly Lisa Gullickson. Uh, I'm Brad Lump of Coal Gullickson. <laughs> and each month we evaluate a different iconic romance within the four color realm. This week we're stuffing your stocking with goodies. We've got a full episode of the Ride the Omnibus podcast with writer and podcaster extraordinaire Ariel Basca, where we discuss The Hunter from the Parker adaptations by Darwin Cook. Ho, 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 ho. Was that, was that your Santa Claus? That's my Santa Claus from A Christmas Story right before he kicks Ralphie down the slide. Oh, that explains the palpable malice in your, <laughs> in your hose. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Or were you one of those kids that was absolutely terrified of Santa Claus? I was not. Oh, you, so you would get on Santa's lap in the mall and get your photo taken? And... We also would not do that. So oh. <laughs> maybe, maybe I don't have any room to That's talk. why you don't have the terror, because my parents definitely took me to the mall to get my photo on Santa. And I was terrified of Santa. And when I finally saw a Christmas story as a kid, having already been terrorized, I recognized the truth of that scene. So when I think Santa, the Santa I think of first is that ho, ho, <laughs> ho, ho. I think we should probably, like, we don't have kids, so no. we can't experiment with this. No. But one of you out there listening, before Christmas, just start handing your infant off to strangers. Yeah, I mean, for next year, because yeah. today's Christmas. Today is Christmas. So just as a warm-up yeah. to passing your precious one to uh, a stranger with a big white beard and weird <laughs> clothes, just start passing your baby off to just <laughs> anyone, and then by the time you get to Santa, they'll be a-okay. Yeah, and then get back to us at CBCC Podcast. Let us know how that goes. <laughs> Hashtag experiments on my children. Yeah. Uh, so, hey, guess what? This episode was not supposed to be. We weren't planning on dropping any content on Christmas week. We wanted to take a break. But then the Holly Jolly Spirit did take us over. And we realized that we have a lot of extra content that our listeners may want to listen to that we've been doing on other podcasts. If you've been following our Twitter feed, we have been talking an unjustifiable amount yeah, about Star Wars. A lot of Star Wars. We've uh, recently appeared on Pod Wars, the It's Canon podcast, and most recently on WSTR Galactic Public Access to discuss the relationship between Grogu and Din Djarin of The Mandalorian. And I'm not going to lie, it's been a delight. Yeah, I've really, really, really enjoyed uh, wading into that galaxy far, far away, right? And giving it the old CBCC twist. Yeah, and in addition to those episodes, we also appeared on, well, I appeared on, Lisa couldn't make it, the My Marvelous Year podcast discussing the comics of 1988, stuff like the introduction of Venom in The Amazing Spider-Man number 300, and we'll include links to all of those shows in the show notes so you can peruse around. And maybe some of you have joined us on this episode because you heard us on one of those other podcasts, so we want to say welcome. Yeah, welcome. Now, what we're going to do with this episode, though, is share, as Lisa said in the introduction, 
our conversation with Ariel Basca of the Ride the Omnibus podcast detailing Darwin Cook's Parker adaptations. And the reason we're putting this in this feed is because I felt like this conversation really was akin to what we normally do on Comic Book Couples Counseling. Absolutely. And we also love Ariel Basca. She is an IRL friend. That's a fact. We, we met her, or I met her anyway, through the Alamo Drafthouse One Loudon Film Club, but then it turns out we have like a deeper connection to her. Yes, she actually attended William & Mary, the theater school, with my sister. So how fun is that? That's not what I was talking about, Lisa. What were I you was, talking about? I was talking about that she's a podcaster, and we have a deep connection as a podcaster. Oh, you're talking about like an emotional resonance because <laughs> we are similar on the insides as we are on the outsides? Yeah, that's, that's totally right. true. Her podcast, Ride the Omnibus, discusses social justice through the lens of pop culture, taking you on a journey to places and times you never knew were connected. Uh, I love Ride the Omnibus, and it was a thrill to join her on her show as part of Noir Vember Month and discuss one of our favorite comic book creations, Parker, as adapted by Darwin Cook. And if you've been following us on the Patreon page, you know we've been in a very Darwin Cook headspace. We recently discussed Jonah Hex number 50, and man, like, I miss that dude. I miss Darwin Cook's work. He was an extraordinarily special and unique talent, and we yeah. were... Lucky to have had him on this plane of existence for as long as we did. Yeah, yeah. So if you haven't read the Parker graphic novels, uh, you should do so. But I do think you can enjoy this conversation without. And I think this conversation will convince you that these are significant works. Um, you should also read the Justice League New Frontier story that he did. That is a top 10 graphic novel for Brad. I've been feeling a reread come yeah. on for a, a while now, so yeah. I'm due. Big time, big time. And those three issues of Jonah Hex that he did with Jimmy Palmiotti and Justin Gray are phenomenal. So Get wonderful. on those as well. So without any further ado, let's jump into this conversation. Ariel, why don't you take us away? and welcome to Ride the Omnibus. I'm your host, Ariel Basca, and sadly, we have reached the end of Noir-vember, but what better way to send it off with a bang than by talking about Parker, the cold-blooded criminal created by Donald Westlake and adapted and illustrated to perfection by Darwin Cook. Joining me to talk all things Parker are Lisa and Brad Gullickson of the Comic Book Couples Counseling Podcast. Okay. I'm recording, We're recording on my now. end. Okay, but you don't have to be all formal about it, dude. Okay? So, like, <laughs> I know that you know that I listen to your podcast all the freaking time because Aww. I love what you guys do on your podcast. I love the way that you take all of the lessons that come from different comic book relationships and apply them in terms of the self-help books that you're so reflective about, talk about your own relationship and how these different principles come out in terms of both the storytelling of the comic creators, as well as your own applications in real life. And it's so super meaningful. And I know someone else said these words, but hilariously heartfelt does kind of describe it. <laughs> um, uh, thank I, you. I think it does work. And I just want you to know that I am a fan and a friend and 
I am talking you up on my podcast because I believe in your mission. I think it's great. Thank you. We really love doing it. And the fact that people actually want to listen, like when I first proposed the idea to Brad, he's like, maybe, (laughs) maybe that's a good idea. He was not on board with the whole self-help angle. But you, I, you whittled I, me down. I strong armed him into it. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, it's interesting, too. You know, I like I take those words of affirmation that you just gave us, Ariel, and I I am very appreciative of them because so often we put out an episode and I'm sure you know how this goes. You'll put it out an episode. You get some likes, maybe some retweets, but you don't get like any actual feedback. Like exactly. not a lot of people like do reviews of your podcast. <laughs> So you work so hard to put out an episode and like our episodes generally run 90 minutes, but to get those 90 minutes out there, that's like four days of actual hard labor. That's not an exaggeration either because Lisa's notes are so extensive. And and then just the recording process, the way we do things, we kind of edit as we go. An actual recording session is usually about four to five hours long. You put all this work out there, you edit it, uh, you put it out in your feed, you're so excited, and it's a rush to get it out there, and it's rushed to see those likes, and it's rushed to see those retweets, but if you don't get like actual feedback back, it can feel a little lonely. Yeah. I know. Especially those of us from the performing arts background, yeah. where it's yep. just like, yep. and where's my Amen. applause? Amen, Lisa. <laughs> that is exactly how I feel. Having come from the world of acting and directing and all of that, it's like, okay, I want my applause. Where That's Where's right. my standing right. ovation? I need it. I need <laughs> yes. it. Yes. So we put an episode out today and one of our listeners, the lovely Andy W responded with a gif of a, some actor. I don't even know who it was doing like a chef's kiss motion. I was like, that's my affirmation of the day. That's <laughs> it. I'm going to cherish this one. It feels so good. Please more to come. <laughs> that's awesome. Like I find that for me, most of the affirmations I get are mostly in statistics as far as I can tell sure. so far, because for me, it's particularly affirming to know that I have listeners around the world. Yes. And every time a new country is added, I'm like, yes, come to me. Domination. Exactly. It's those things that I kind of live for. And I'm very grateful to our listeners and so forth, obviously. And I think it's wonderful that I have this outlet to actually be able to express the things that I need. But at the same time, it's, as you say, it's a lot of work. And there isn't really a return except in what I'm learning as opposed to what I'm getting back from listeners per se. Yeah, but it is wild to see that people are actually listening. And so while you might not get the iTunes reviews that you want or the tweets that you're hoping for, just seeing your listeners around the world, like that's kind of absurd to me that anybody would want to listen to us. But it is also very gratifying and warming. You do get some connection there, even if you're not communicating via I don't know, texts or whatever. And anything that takes courage and and uses your passion is always going to be something that has its challenges. Yeah. And and the only reason why we obsess over those words of affirmation or uh, how many listens have we gotten so far is because 
um, we're loving what we're doing and we just yes. want to share that love. Oh, no, absolutely. Because I'm exactly the same way. And mm-hmm. I started my podcast basically in a fuck you to a whole yeah. bunch of people. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I was on someone else's podcast who said, yeah, I like to have one woman on a show with a panel of four people to even it out. And to I even it like, out. Oh. Yeah. And <laughs> I was like, you know what? I'm starting my own goddamn podcast. And yep. within a week, I had it up. And that's sort of where I started. And I started very militantly with a lot of feminist content and then uh-huh. I remember. sort of changed it. But I feel like I've just learned so much on this journey and it's been so wonderful. And so much art has been produced out of a fuck you mentality, right? We were watching David Fincher's new film, Mank, which is all about Mankiewicz uh, taking his rage for being ostracized by Hearst's people to write Citizen Kane. And, you know, (laughs) he wrote one of the greatest movies of all time as kind of like an F you to that dude. (laughs) And that was the spirit in which he accepted his Emmy Award, which was... <laughs> the best speech ever. Yeah. Oscar. 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 Me. But yeah, uh, I downgraded him. Yeah, <laughs> don't downgrade affair. him. Well, David Fincher can get an Emmy because he's on Netflix now. And that's TV. <laughs> uh, so sure. says Andy Geyerson. I was sorry. Andy Geyerson possessed me for a moment. <laughs> Good old Andy G. Yeah. So question, when you talk about your CBCC approach to relationships, were you both rereading Parker, thinking about how you would talk about Parker and Lynn in that way? To me, when I was reading The Hunter, I was relieved after Lynn was dead. (laughs) I was just like, good. It's to me, I can't enjoy Parker while he's dragging around a battered woman <laughs> like it's just, yeah. like it's women like it's just less it's just less fun <laughs> <laughs> I mean, okay well uh, this is yeah. this is a specific topic i really wanted to get in deep with you lisa because uh-huh. i think the casual misogyny behind these books and this character throughout oh, yeah. this story you know I have very complicated feelings about this that I kind of want to unpack. And I I thought it was great that you and I could kind of unpack it. And then you and me and Brad could unpack it. And I can give you all your insights into misogyny. Uh, Yeah, no, go away. All right. So for me, just straight off the bat, you meet Parker in The Hunter and he is a disgusting human being. He is wearing dirty clothes. <laughs> he uh, Literally disgusting. He People see his face and they recoil. He is not a man to be admired. I mean, he's Frankenstein's monster. Like, he, he is a beast. And... He's a sociopath. So I think that it's set up that Parker is not a hero. Parker is a trash person and he is um, maybe not a Frankenstein's monster, but he's a monster in that like... Yeah, you're he's, right. He's he not is, a Frankenstein's monster. He's a machine. He doesn't have... Like, he's like a sociopath. He doesn't yeah. have emotions. Yeah. So for me, what appeals to me in the Parker novels is... One, like looking through the eyes of a sociopath is always curious and thankfully foreign to me because I am a very like emotions forward human being. And then also like I love plots and schemes. 
I mm-hmm. like to see someone put together a plan and execute the plan. I've always had an interest in crime films and, and that sort of thing, but it is yuckier when he has someone attached to him that is fragile. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It is interesting as you go through the series, and I don't want to jump ahead, but the tone and vibe of The Hunter is very different than the other Richard Stark novels and certainly the other Darwin Cook adaptations. You know, the score mm-hmm. is a total blast. The score is like watching Ocean's Eleven in yeah. a lot of ways. Yeah. But The Hunter, because it's so caught up in his rage and anger and his total lack of feeling for any other human being, in particular the woman that he was once married to, is it's um, it's it's I'm gonna, gross. I'm, I'm gonna tackle you on that point though. Sure. Because I think Darwin Cook does a beautiful job of actually illustrating how much he actually did care for Lynn and how the fact that she betrayed him is really the thing that is fueling this engine. Well, you, well in that's the okay. Hunter. Yeah, that, I, I, I'll give you that. I'll give you that. I guess what I'm saying is, once she betrays him and he suffers that hurt, he's then able to remove any kind of sentimentality that he had for her, and that's why he's able to cut up her face and leave her on the side of the road. Mm. To me, I go like, was what he felt actually love? And is he mad that she hurt him? Yes. Is she even more mad that she humiliated him? I think I think it's a power issue. Sort of. But there is that one frame that I do want to just remind you guys of where she comes on to him and he says that tree is dead yeah. for you. But then he goes back to his room and he's imagining her shape. And it says that tree is not dead. And that was the thing that scared him most. Right, right. And he still had some kind of attachment to her. That that he, he would always have this attachment to her and that she was the only one that he ever had any attachment to. But the attachment was the way that their relationship looked like before the betrayal was he would go on a heist. They'd make passionate, crazy love. Then he would slowly withdraw and become meaner and meaner to her until the Mm -hmm. next heist. So Mm -hmm. she was rolled up in the elation of him serving whatever like a, she had a use. Yeah. uh, Yeah. Yeah. And I, I do think that there are feelings there and, I think that's one of the joys of the hunter, really, is trying to sort your way through what all these things mean to Parker. And I know uh, Richard Stark, Donald Westlake talked about how this book was really an experiment for him to express all emotionality internally for his character Mm -hmm. and remove all external emotion. Mm -hmm. And I think it's easier to fall into the headspace of Parker in the novels than it is in this adaptation. Although, obviously, Cook provides a lot of Stark's writing in this book. But he does pull back in a way that Stark never does. But this emotionality in The Hunter is internalized. Like, when you internalize a flame, it lacks oxygen. And Mm -hmm. then after The Hunter, that flame is out. 
And mm-hmm. he's just like a bulldozer, just bulldozing yeah. his way through the outfit. Mm-hmm. And that's a good analogy because that was even what Richard, I mean, Donald Westlake, I, you know, sorry, I'm <laughs> using the pseudonym, but so do Donald I. Westlake, I, I like using the pseudonym. He flips it back and forth. <laughs> yeah. Donald Westlake even said that he thought of Parker as being like a construction worker. Mm-hmm. And apparently like Darwin Cook went to his funeral and it was a construction worker that had known Donald Westlake for all of his life, who gave the most wonderful eulogy for him. I had not heard that story. Yeah. And it was the idea that he's a construction worker. He just thinks of his job as laying concrete. He kills out of yeah. expediency, not out of anger. And except for the hunter, that's true. I think that he also does have a value system. In the outfit, he's doing something out of kind of a sense of they got money that was owed to me for a job. That's that's not fair. I want my, you know, you don't deserve it. Yeah. My forty five hundred dollars or however much it was. And when they refused to give it to him. He essentially held their arm behind their back until they gave up. And then in the outfit, they come after him because mm-hmm. he's a nuisance. Mm-hmm. And he, you know, because he went after him the first time. And then he's offended by that. And yeah. Like, I told you, mm-hmm. if you were going to come after me, I'm going to burn your organization to the ground. And then he does so. Like he is a man of principles. Yeah. Man he of is. Principles. And yeah. that's that's the appeal to me is this dark principle, these dark motivations. And he stands by them and... They are not your motivations as a citizen or as a human being, but it's nice to wear these workman's shoes. These enormous shoes (laughs) that you are introduced to so early on. Yeah. 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 So, Brad, you in particular are a big longtime fan of Darwin Cook's. How did this work strike you on reread in the context of all of Darwin Cook's work? So I was a massive fan of Richard Stark, Donald Westlake, and I was a massive fan of Darwin Cook, thanks to things like Batman Ego and The New Frontier, his work on Batman Beyond. And I I loved his stuff. And then running parallel to that, in high school, I read all the Parker novels up till Deadly Edge. Oh, I, didn't I actually realize. like okay. sputtered out on Deadly Edge in college, and I have not gone back to the Parker novels, and I keep meaning hmm. to. But I've read the first two hundred. Well, that's not right. It's probably like the first forty-five pages. I've read the first forty-five pages of. A deadly Edge three times. <laughs> and for whatever reason, I just can't break that barrier. It, it, like the, the, the book does does not work for me. But I'm, I'm, I'm going to do it. Maybe I'm going to make a promise right here. I'm going to do it. And I'm going to finish the rest of the series because I really want to get to Butcher Moon. Okay, um, we're holding you to it. All right. Okay, good. Uh, so I love both of these things. And then this miracle happened where Darwin Cook announced that he was going to adapt Parker and the Hunter. That was like, uh, I, I didn't, you know, like two great tastes that taste great together. You know, you know like this is like my Reese's peanut butter cup. And, and I was so excited. And at the original plan for Darwin Cook was he was going to adapt every single Parker novel. But then that quickly changed when he considered adapting the man with a getaway face. And he's like, I don't really want to do that whole book because there's not really much there for me, at least uh, the way I see it. Although I love the man with a getaway face. And so on the reread, this is probably the fourth or fifth time I've read The Hunter. 
And I had never read Slayground because mm. I did not want to read Slayground because the moment I read Slayground, I was done with Darwin Cook because it was the last mm. work of Darwin Cook's that I had not experienced. And I've now done that and I loved it, uh, but I'm also sad about it. Uh, so your original question was, what was it like on the reread? And for me, having read this and Lisa and I recently uh, reread his uh, Jonah Hex issue 50 that he did some time mm-hmm. ago. And we read the Wolverine dupe. So Marvel cute. If you, have, if you have not read those two issues, they are so cute. What's fascinating to me is when you look at those, well, maybe not Jonah Hex, but when you look at Wolverine dupe or when you look at Justice League, the new frontier, which is my other favorite work of his, Like they're so bright and optimistic and hopeful. And then you see the other personality of Darwin Cook as expressed through Richard Stark in the Parker books. And it's not like these are all like despairing books, but they are mean books. Mm -hmm. And it's satisfying. Like I love the meanness of it. And I just think depending on what your mood is, Parker will be your favorite Darwin Cook piece of art one day, and then New Frontier will be your favorite piece of art the next day. He has such a command over the human emotional spectrum. While still staying in his very specific style. nostalgic style. Yes, yes, yeah. yes. Because Parker and New Frontier, they have a foot or an eye in the past and in a very specific frame of time, you know, like the 40s through the 60s. Mm-hmm. To me, like when you said two great tastes that taste great together, the Parker, he is the the silky, smooth, beautiful chocolate. But the Parker side is so, so salty in its peanut butterness. <laughs> you mean it's the, so the, salty. The cook, the cook the, side? No, the, the Parker. Like the Darwin Cook plus Richard Stark. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Richard yeah. Stark is so salty. Yes, yes. And to me, I had tried to read the Parker novels. Yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> and... I could not stand being inside Parker's head. I did not like it. It was uncomfortable for me. It was gross. It was hard for me to really get any momentum reading it because my impulse to set it down was so strong. But Mm. when you add Darwin Cook's art to it, it makes it more enticing to me. And then I do get to enjoy the parts of Parker that I really enjoy. All of the characters around him, how mm-hmm. alien they are to Parker. I remember this the scene with him and Handy McCoy. McKay. McKay. And Handy McKay is like, hey, I'll do that job for you for free. Like we have yeah. we have this yeah. history. And Parker going like, I don't know about this guy. He's getting soft. <laughs> like I love I love those little moments where you get past the ugliness to really really realize how alien Parker is. And on rereading it, you focus on the craft that is involved Mm. and clearly how in love cook is with Stark's writing. Like if I'm like, if we open the first page of the Hunter, right. Or maybe not the first page after New York city, 1962. And then it goes book one. And then we have this scene of Parker on the bridge and the cars driving by. And then we get the first sentence of the novel, which is when a fresh faced guy in a Chevy offered him a lift, 
Parker told him to. And then in the comic, it says dash dash. And then we get a word balloon. Go to hell. Mm-hmm. And so that's not in dialogue. That's not in quotes in the book, in, in the Richard Stark, Donald Westlake book. But Cook transforms that. And he really takes one sentence and he recreates that sentence in a way that only this form could. It is so evocative of the text. Yeah, like looking at the images it's in the book. passion for the book. Brings the text back to the forefront of my mind. Yeah. And so reading The Hunter is like watching a love affair between Darwin Cook and Donald Westlake. And what's interesting, too, is that Darwin Cook also deliberately tried not to use any of his own language at all. Mm-hmm in the book and in fact wrote that he only used about a dozen sentences or so per each of the adaptations that were not directly in Donald Westlake's original. And if you think about that, that's incredible. Yeah. You know, because I mean, he cares, he cares. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, he really wanted to get it right. And he knew that whatever he added would be a subtraction. Mm -hmm. Mm hmm. And you also have the sense that the way that he's playing with time in Mm. the novels as he's adapting them is fascinating, too. I mean, Lisa, you were commenting on how it's much more palatable in the Darwin Cook version. And I think part of that is that Darwin Cook is breaking up the novel into kind of segments that allow it to breathe like a fine Mm. wine in some ways and that you're going through these narrative passages that are very heavy with prose, just sort of following Parker in the car as he's driving into the lot or something, but you're still with him. Yeah, and you get that where, like, in the the novels, you never get to come up for air, where Mm -hmm. with the um, graphic novel, you get these visual moments of, like, okay, I'm in a new place this is a new attitude. This is a new day. Just visually, yeah, it's much easier to follow it. And it helps you pace your, yourself. You can dwell on a page for as long as you need. I also think it's rather interesting that Darwin Cook had several examples of other people's adaptations of the novels, right? That's true. He had John Borman's Point Blank. Mm -hmm. He had the Mel Gibson payback movie. He had two versions of Mel Gibson's payback movie. He had the outfit. Yeah, the outfit, uh, the split, the Godard film. (laughs) there's, There's a ton of attempts at capturing the stark aesthetic but all of those actually while they're attempts they're not really attempts of capturing the aesthetic they're just springboarding off of an idea off of a uh, a glimpse of a character and i think cook saw all those and while he loves um versions of it he loves point blank and he loves the outfit and or, or at least that's donald westlake loved point blank and he loved the outfit but neither of them really capture the tone of the novel And so Cook was very concerned with like, this is an opportunity to do Parker right. In fact, it's the only adaptation before Jason Statham ruined everything that uses the name Parker. Mm -hmm. And you know why that is, right? I've heard different stories. Do you have like the the real deal? I have the definitive real deal. The definitive real deal is that Donald Westlake would not let anyone use the word or the names Parker Unless they were willing to commit to a multi-part series. Oh. So while he was alive, 
He absolutely refused to let anyone have the rights to make a Parker movie unless they would commit to a franchise, which no one was willing to do in the days of point blank, the outfit, et cetera. Yeah, yeah. And so that's why you have all these various different actors plugging in for a role that's an avatar for Parker. And so if he's going to do Parker for the first time that by not Donald Westlake's pen, he's got to really adhere to the books and Mm -hmm. to what he thinks Westlake saw when he was imagining what Parker even looked like. And I think that's one of the interesting stories also is how Donald Westlake, when he would write a novel, he never apparently imagined what those characters looked like, except in the case of Parker. He always Mm -hmm. saw Parker as Jack Palance from Panic in the Streets. Which is the episode we just had, coincidentally. Last week, we covered the movie Panic in the Streets. How about that? I love me some Jack Palance and some Richard Widmark. Oh, oh, but let me tell you, Panic in the Streets is essentially 2020 the movie. Uh, Yeah, I was saying that to Lisa earlier. (laughs) I was like that because he was like, oh, now I feel like watching Panic in the Streets. And he told me that it's about somebody spreading a virus. And I was like, I don't know. I don't know if I'm in the mood for that. (laughs) Oh, oh, you are. But if you're not in the mood for it right now, you can go back and listen to my episode from last week and then I definitely get will. yourself in the mood for that killer programming. Yeah. Gotta give oh. you some <laughs> snaps for that. Oh yeah. <laughs> and, and we did do a little bit of a discussion of Donald Westlake as well at the end of oh, that cool. episode. So cool. specifically because we knew this was coming and also because my guest for that show, Kieran begged me, begged me on hand and knee to give you some extra love for what you're doing. And, love for Parker and talk as much as possible about this world. So very cool. It's interesting when you look at the Parker Martini edition that IDW put out and you go to the back and you see all the portraits that Darwin Cook illustrated of all the various actors who've portrayed versions of this character throughout the years. And Darwin Cook also went ahead and did Jack Palance. He did a couple yeah. portraits of Jack Palance. Yeah. And he can capture Jack Palance perfectly. Mm-hmm. And in the comic, you can kind of see where he took Jack Palance's face from Panic in the Streets and started to stretch from there. Like he doesn't he doesn't put Jack Palance on the page in The Hunter or in The Man with the Getaway Face slash mm-hmm. the outfit when he gets the mm-hmm. new head. And what I really love, too, about the Martini edition. Can I can I just wax poetic for a minute? Oh, please. please. OK, the first time I read these, I read them in the small paperbacks from IDW. But yeah. when I got the Martini edition, I was just drooling over it. And this was the perfect opportunity to kind of go through the Martini edition and really snuggle up with it. It's a tome. I mean, it's a chunk. Oh, but it was just brilliant. Like the the feel of the pages transmits something to me. Mm. Like it 
feels so different as a comic reading experience. I don't know if that's something that you guys experienced at all while you were looking through these. I, I, I believe very much in that type of experience. Uh, I, I am a tactile, tactile consumer. If we're going to get real for a moment, Darwin Cook's Parker books are the only books in which I buy every single edition. So I have the paperback. I have the hardback. I have the martini edition. I have the Comic-Con exclusives. Anytime I, a new print of this comes out, I am going to buy it. Uh, it's not healthy, probably, or financially <laughs> sound. Um, but, you know, it's, it's just it's it is one of my heart comics and uh, I, I need to have it all. And the Martini Edition, it's a labor of love beyond just the content because Darwin Cook, you know, he comes from the world of advertising. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, he's a graphic designer. When he partnered with IDW, one of the deals was that he was going to partake in how they were bound, the paper that they used, the font, the, you know, like every element of, at least with the hardbacks and the Martini Edition, every element of those books went through the brain of Darwin Cook. And so the art extends beyond the story. It, it goes to the spine and beyond. And uh, yeah, like the Martini Edition is so massive and you lay it out there in your lap and it's a canvas. It's not just a comic. It's a hunk of art. But for me, I like to read the hardback because if you are going to like really get to the pulpy nature of it. I, I think you really have to spoon with this book, get in a cozy corner and sure. you just cannot spoon with uh, the martini edition. Well, when I reread them, I reread them in the, the soft covers because, you know, like it's, I, I agree. I like to fall back on the couch and crack that spine till the pages are coming out. <laughs> uh, but with mm -hmm. the martini edition, you know, I put on my white gloves and I pour myself a glass of scotch and then I just soak it all in. Yeah. Ooh. Ooh. Yeah, I would date the Martini edition, but I would marry the hardback. Ooh, and I'd have a dirty fling with the paperback. <laughs> okay, okay. It's just incredible for me every time I get into the Martini edition and I touch those pages and I just pour over it. I have my room, my comic book room in which I am allowed to keep the martini edition <laughs> and it is not allowed to leave that room. I understand that. Because I, I once made the mistake of taking it to the kitchen table to read it. Yep. And yep. Tragedies happen there. Tragedies <laughs> happen there. Well, I... It, it, tragedy didn't actually happen, but I was so afraid of tragedy happening every single second that I was like, no, I can't. Yeah, that's, that's not fun. That's no. not fun. Oh, I'm super excited for the next martini edition to come out. The one that oh, Ed last call is, is going to be epic. It's yeah. going to be wonderful. I'm curious to see how different, if at all, it is without any Darwin Cook input in its construction. Yeah, I'm a little curious about that, too. I mean, I don't know exactly how it's going to be created, whether it's going to... Well, you'd think that they would have want to have some kind of continuity. Yeah, probably. Yeah, yeah. I would hope what so. What was great about the first Martini edition, which is an impossibility on the second one, is that it came with the seventh, the short yes, story. Yes. Uh, which I think now is included. Which paperback is it in? 
I, th- I think it's at the end of the score or at the beginning of the score, but it is now currently hiding in one of the IDW paperbacks. Uh, it's at the end of the score. Okay, yeah, yeah. And it's a fun little tale. It's a fun little tale. Sounds like we sent Ariel to the stacks. We t- sent her to the yes. stacks. So there's well, some deep I, research I, happening. I, I kept the stacks next to me. Because okay, I anticipated Same. such a question happening, <laughs> you know, because I I must be prepared in all things. Oh, yeah, I, I get that. And but- I have not like researched, you know, like I haven't even like read the contents page of the last call edition because I'm, I've got it on order and I just can't wait for it to show up. Oh, yeah. But Same. Part of me goes like it would be cool if Ed Brubaker and say Sean Phillips, the criminal it would duo, be. Yeah, did like a did a tale for it. It would be great, especially since Brubaker did the interview with Darwin Cook at the yeah. beginning of the Martini edition, the first one. But I really don't want it ruined for me in any sure. way. Sure, same, like I know same. this sounds stupid, but no, no, it doesn't. I just don't want to know what the contents are until I pick it up from my local comic book store. Exactly, I'm the same way. I when mean, you're sold, you're sold. If yeah. you're buying the book, like why? Why, why watch we, the trailer? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, Lisa, tell me. How nervous were you about reading these books, knowing how much Brad was already in love mm. with them? We've had many a situation, like when we were dating, what was that movie? No Country for Old Men. He took me to see No Country for Old Men and and he loved this movie and I just was not feeling it. And from then on, he's kind of lowered his expectation of our Venn diagram of interests ever (laughs) being a circle. We're pretty good. We share a lot of similar interests. And I was confident that you may, I I wasn't sure if you were going to like The Hunter. All right. right, right. But I was confident that you would like the outfit and the score mm-hmm. uh, because of your plots and schemes and, you know, your love for Ocean's Eleven and Lock, Stock and Two Smoking Barrel and uh, barrels and things like that. But, uh, but Brad isn't the kind of nerd where if your interests like he doesn't want to debate it, where like some <laughs> people, they, they suggest something for you. And if you don't love it, they want you to like break down and tell them why exactly you don't like it so they can tell you you're wrong. That like Brad is in that. I always feel very safe when Brad recommends something to me that I, I get to have my own genuine experience with it. And that's what happened with the novels where I gave the hunter an honest try and got, I don't know, maybe a third of the way in, maybe a half of the way in. And I set it down and I said, no, thank you. And, you know, maybe he was a little hurt, but... Mm, Hurt's not the right word. I don't get hurt when you don't like something that I love, but I am... I am weary of giving you something I love if I have not processed the possibility of you hating on it. Uh. So like, you know, we just covered or we're currently covering Usagi Yojimbo on the Comic Book Couples Counseling Podcast. And this is something that I have fallen madly in love with over the course of the pandemic. I had read some Stan Sakai comics uh, before this year. I had dabbled with Usagi Yojimbo, but I had never read from the first issue to the last issue. And that was one of the projects I gave myself. And over the course of that project, Usagi Yojimbo became one of my top 10 favorite comic books of all time, which is where Parker exists. And I was like, Lisa, I so want to cover this on the podcast. And I think there is material here for this podcast, but I have no idea if you're going to Mm -hmm. like this at all. 
And I was nervous going into our first episode talking about Grass Cutter. But thankfully, I mean, before we recorded it, we talked about it. But like after you read Grass Cutter, thankfully, you enjoyed it. I did. But it wasn't until we got to Mother of Mountains, our yes. second episode, where you started to really like it. And then when that happens, when Lisa and I love something together, that's like an extra high. <laughs> but if Lisa had hated Usagi Ojimbo, I probably just would have shut down all conversations and I could not have probably gone into like why, like Lisa says, I don't want to hear why you hated it. Just tell me you hated it and let's just move on to the next thing. We've been together though for like 12 years, 13 13 years. years. He's gotten pretty good at curating things for me. So and vice versa and vice versa. So he understood why I didn't like the Richard Stark novels, but then he was pleasantly surprised as I began pouring over Parker and, and really finding things to appreciate and delight in. And I had already, because of new frontier, I was already in love with Darwin Cook's art um, because we actually went at one of the San Diego comic cons. They had a memorial panel for him for Darwin Cook. And there I got to hear all of these other amazing artists tell these really wonderful stories about him. And and I, I really gained a deep respect for the guy. You know, he yeah. seemed like a, a real he seemed like a real character. He, He's yeah. like the kind of person where you you admire his work, but you'd be a little nervous to hang with him. You know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> oh, for yeah. sure. For yeah. sure. I saw him once at a Comic-Con at a panel and it was for... I think the score had just come out. Yeah, it must have. Uh, maybe it was the outfit. Yeah, maybe it was. The, I can't remember. It doesn't matter. Like at that panel afterwards, because he was so intense and he spent most of that panel taking a dump on Bleeding Cool, the website, uh, not to throw <laughs> shade at Bleeding Cool, but uh, there you have it. Um, <laughs> but the, you know, he spent a bunch of the panel complaining about that afterwards. I was like, you know what? I love this dude so much. I don't know if I could handle talking to him right now. <laughs> And I, ne- and I and I didn't approach him. And I have regretted that decision ever since. Mm. Go talk to the guys you love. Life is precious. Yeah. But I can also attest that I have met some of the people I love and they have also sometimes been dicks to me. So. Yeah. <laughs> but it didn't change how I felt about their work. Either way, you're not really going to lose. You only have everything to gain. Yeah. You still have the art. No matter what. Here's the thing, though. I have also met people (laughs) who I adore and disappointed me, and I don't like their work (laughs) anymore. I cannot engage with certain actors uh, the the way that I once did because I've had weird experiences. Oh, that's hilarious. So, yeah, I'm petty. I'm not that petty because I understand that everybody is a person as well as an artist. And, well, if they engage in criminal activity yeah you're cut off but short of that you're a human being and i may not choose to support you if you're doing things i deeply deeply disapprove of that impinge on your professional life but being a dick everyone's allowed to do that nope (laughs) okay (laughs) not to brad not to brad (laughs) he's gonna write you off everybody watch your back (laughs) (laughs) it comes from just being In the freelancing space, I think there are so many artists and creators out there who are enormously generous with their time. I think that's a wonderful thing. But at the same time, there are also people who genuinely don't have that much in the tank to give. And they either Mm -hmm. give it to their art or they give it to 
their emotional well-being. Yeah. And I think actually to bring it back to Darwin Cook and Parker in that interview that's at the beginning of the Martini edition, uh, you know, they're talking about how they wanted to promote the hunter uh, when it first was published by IDW. And he just never thought it made any sense to do those myriad of interviews you do with all the, the basic comic book sites, the entertainment sites, you know, you do mm-hmm. 30 mm-hmm. interviews. They all ask the same questions. It, they last 10 minutes and it's just not satisfying. And so they decided to go with the comics reporter and do like this really long form interview, which is great. And it's in the beginning of the Martini edition and it is a feast. And what he's talking about there are those moments where you do one question, one junket after the other. And by the end of it, you have been drained. And it's in those situations where I've had my bad experiences because I'm the guy who does those really uh, uh, shallow 10 minute interviews. Yeah. For film school rejects. Yeah. yeah. And and, and so like, you know, sure, that that could be the reason why. But uh, again, I'm petty. Yeah, I, I, I don't know. With Brad, I don't know if it has more to do with um, him no longer liking the artist or just having a squidgy feeling okay, about his own self-esteem. That's really what it is. It's a squidgy <laughs> feeling. It's When I see that actor now in a movie, I go like, oh. I remember when I was nerdy, oh, knew him. No, this was not good. Things are awkward. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, I, I totally get it. I'm in that space now, too, with Comics Bookcase, and I'm meeting a lot of comic book creators that I really love and sometimes they're really generous with their time and really giving and sometimes they're not so much and it's just like oh there are stories i want to tell you when we're not recording (laughs) anyway all of those things being said i do want to just quickly ask though if you guys have any particular shout outs you want to give in terms of projects that you have upcoming on cbcc or other things going on you go first lisa me go first well um i'm always accepting words of affirmation at sidewalk siren on twitter and instagram we are just finishing up our usagi yojimbo series we're going to cover senso oh yeah have you read any usagi of course i've read usagi have you read senso i have not read senso okay well i just started it and it is wild (laughs) (laughs) and i think that it's going to take uh there is a lot there to talk about the unrequited love of usagi and tomoe and what that may look like in their 15 years in the alternate future (laughs) <laughs> Lisa's determined that she's only. I've already written it off. I'm like, this is not canon to yeah, me. Yeah. This is a flight of fancy. Um, oh my. I am in, I am enjoying it, but you know how sacred canon is to me. So I, I highly recommend checking out that series. I'm also really proud of our episodes 50 through 53, where we cover Don Greenwood and Silver Surfer. Yes, so if you those never, were amazing. You guys did such a great job. Thank you. Well, that run by Dan Slott and Mike Allred is like one of my all-time heart pieces of art. I think that those episodes, if you've never listened to CBCC before, and if you've never read a comic book before, I think that's a, a nice place to like dip in and, and see what, what love in comic books and love in people is all about. Yeah. I'd also give a plug to Lisa because you wrote about your fandom for Don Greenwood on Comics Bookcase. Of, of which Ariel is also a writer. So That's how right. cool is that? So check out that article of Lisa's. 
Ooh, tell them about what we're doing on Twitter right now. Uh, oh, 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 I was like, what, what are we doing on Twitter right now? Uh, we did just launch, because we're recording this on Black Friday, our CBCC gift guide every December uh, for two years in a row. Uh, uh, this is now a tradition. Uh, we cr- use the hashtag CBCC gift guide to recommend comics, toys, pieces of art, clothing that we think the geeks in your life would appreciate. And I can guarantee you that Parker Last Call will be one of the things that we highlight uh, using that hashtag. And it's also a good place for Lisa and I to bookmark things that we want in our <laughs> lives. Now, one of our very first items is a book that we literally just bought as soon as we found it. We saw it pop up in the uh, six the 616. Marvel 616 on, uh, not that Disney Plus needs a plug. But have you read any Miss Fury? I have not. And I, I saw what you wrote about it. And I was very interested. Not that I'm just going to book myself on a future podcast, but I would love to chat you, Miss Fury you, with you. you. You might find yourself <laughs> on a future podcast talking about Miss Fury. Cause oh, it's, I, I, yeah. it's exciting. And that's also an IDW collection and it's huge and gorgeous and the paper feels great. Beyond that for, uh, let's see, comic book couples. Oh, well, we also launched our Patreon. And so if you really want to like dig into the nitty gritty of the CBCC community and get all kinds of random weirdo bonus episodes, uh, please feel free to join our Patreon. We just did an entire episode covering the Punisher trilogy, meaning the Dolph Lundgren film, the Thomas Jane film and the Ray Stevenson film. And I had a total blast introducing Lisa to those movies, which uh, some are good and some are not. Guess what? I didn't love all of them. No, you didn't. But I did love one of them. Yep. yep. And, you, and you have to give us a little jingle jangle to figure out which one. Yeah. So uh, go check out our Patreon. That would be swell. Yeah. And full disclosure, the host of this podcast, Ride the Omnibus, also joined that Patreon. So you should too. Yeah. yeah. You're keeping our love tank full. <laughs> oh, yeah. We need it. Oh, yeah. Well, I want to thank you guys so much for this conversation. And I wish you guys luck with your ongoing projects. They all sound phenomenal. Oh, thank you. Thank you for celebrating the love of Noir-vember and Parker. Yeah. Happy Noir-vember, everyone. Thank you for listening. And thank you to our editor, William Das. Alas, we have reached the end of November, but as we get ever closer to escaping the iron grip of 2020, we'll be talking about the pop culture that got us through this year. Join us next time for Saving Throws, the games we needed in 2020. But at this very moment, please leave us a five-star review on iTunes or Podchaser. It helps us grow our audience and improve the show. You can also help us out by following us on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook, where we are at Omnibus Ride. Be safe, be well, and do good work. See you next time you catch a ride on the Omnibus. just delightful yeah i had so much fun talking parker parker was a santa claus of sorts he was <laughs> sneaking into people's homes giving them stuff they didn't expect eating their cookies yeah that's right uh <laughs> drinking their milk giving the often the gift of uh the next life yeah <laughs>
<laughs> yeah, sometimes taking it away too, though. That's what I'm saying, Brett. He killed people, sending no. them into their next life. Oh, no, life. I thought you meant the gift of insemination. Uh, oh. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Oh, gosh. Uh, whatever. Uh, Santa, Parker, I would definitely want, well, do I want Parker coming down my chimney? No, no I, never. No, I don't want Parker coming down my chimney, but I want like a gift basket of Parker novels. Oh, yeah. Yes, and please. I do want to pick up those books again, the Richard Stark books. I need to get back to Deadly Edge and work my way through the end. Um, you know, completing Slayground, as I was saying on that episode, I it felt like a loss. It like It felt like finally putting a chapter on Darwin Cook away because I've now consumed all of his art. Um, but maybe I can like rekindle that feeling by diving back into the Richard Stark novels. Maybe that can be one of your New Year's intentions. Yeah, and honestly, Ed Brubaker and Sean Phillips, they just launched Reckless this month. Which you read and loved. Absolutely adored that comic. It is very much in the spirit of Darwin Cook's adaptations. It's inspired by Darwin Cook's adaptations, as Brubaker says in the afterword. And, I, you know, like, that, that so yeah, uh, I've got that in my future too. Like, you know, just because you've read everything doesn't mean it's over, and it doesn't mean you can't revisit it either. And rereading always gives the gifts of new insights. Like, yeah. you're... Even after they're gone, your relationship with those creators is always evolving and changing. Yeah, that's, yes, yeah. And we're champions of that idea very much so here on this podcast. I think sometimes I just get in a melancholic state around Christmas and it's like, there's, it's an ending and I don't want it to end, but it doesn't have to. It's on your terms, Brad. Stop being so somber. And as you can see, there is more runtime to this episode. This is like when you dump out your Christmas stocking, and then you feel, ooh, there's something still in the toe. Oh, yeah. Generally, yeah. for me, it was an orange. Like an orange with like a bunch of cloves jabbed into it? No, or, just a straight up orange. No, not like a chocolate orange? No. Your parents would just drop some fruit in the bottom of your stocking? Yeah, we would have an orange in the toe and an apple in the heel. Uh, oh, no, I don't like any of that. <laughs> it should be G.I. Joe's or nothing. No, we would get uh, like those hard Christmas hard uh -huh. candies. Uh-huh. Nuts in the shell, uh -huh. an orange uh -huh. in the toe, and an apple in the heel. No, I don't like that. There's no orange in this stocking for our listeners. At the bottom, what you're going to get is a special spoiler-free review of Wonder Woman 1984, which just dropped on HBO Max if you have it, or if you can travel to a theater safely and partake in it on the big screen, you can do that as well. But I urge you, just maintain your distance. Don't do a lot of traveling uh, today and anytime soon. That's that not how you want to start, start your new year. Yeah, no, that's not the gift you want. But Wonder Woman 1984 is a gift you want. And this episode that you're about to hear, we put on our Patreon. But because Lisa and I are still in such a giving mood, we wanted to unlock that. And we wanted to go a step further and drop that review in our main feed anyway. Just in case you didn't see that tweet. Yeah. And click that link. Because guess what? There are a lot of reviews going around right now about Wonder Woman 1984. And I gotta say, I think the film is pretty darn great. A lot I loved of people, it. a lot of people didn't love it the way that we did, yeah. but that is to be expected. You know, yeah, we're, art is subjective, but know going into this review that Brad and Lisa give it the CBCC thumbs up. That's right. And when we get done recording this 
outro, we are actually going to watch Wonder Woman 1984 again because it's rad. Yeah. Friends, we interrupt this regularly scheduled program to bring you an advanced, spoiler-free review of Wonder Woman 1984. And joining me tonight is the Steve Trevor to my Wonder Woman, Lisa <laughs> Gullickson. How are you? Hello, I join you every night because you are my beloved. Yes, like Steve Trevor to my Wonder Woman. You always get to be Wonder Woman. Yeah. How come I never get the lasso? Because the gods decreed it to me. The Amazonians <laughs> gave it to me. Enough bedroom talk, Brad. Let's give the people what they want. Yeah, so Wonder Woman 1984. We were lucky enough to get an advanced screening two days early. And we are going to lord those two days over <laughs> you? Well, honestly, we were just so excited after we watched it. We wanted to, like, put our thoughts down on podcast paper. Spoiler-free thoughts. Yeah, we're not looking to sully anyone's first-time experience with the movie, so we're not going to go any further into the plot synopsis than what the trailer has already revealed to you. I think that's fair, right? Yes. And if you have not watched the trailer because you are trying to go in truly unsullied, then, then why, why are you listening? Yeah, why are you listening? Turn this off. Turn this off. We're Turn not this what off. you want right now, <laughs> but you'll want us later. Wonder Woman 1984, the sequel to 2017's Wonder Woman. Patty Jenkins is back as director. She's doing the screenplay along with Jeff Johns and Dave Callahan. Gal Gadot returns as Diana Prince. And hey, what's that? Chris Pine, he's back as Steve Trevor as well. What? He died in World War One. That isn't a flashback. He's wearing a fanny pack, for God's sakes. He sure is, and boy, do I love that fanny pack. And then joining Chris Pine and Gal Gadot are Kristen Wiig and Pedro Pascal. Love me the Mandalorian. I want to touch his face with my little green hand. So, full disclosure, Wonder Woman 2017, Lisa and I were actually not the biggest fans of that movie. We liked it. I liked it fine. I liked a lot about it, even. I just wasn't bowled over by it. And the further away from the film we've gotten, the less I think about it. As much as I loved Gal Gadot's performance, the film was just not sticky for me. So going into Wonder Woman 1984, I was really loving some of the, like, 80s retro aesthetic. Our childhood on display. Yes, though I was very young at the time in 1984. That was my first full year on the planet. Oh, that's true. I am a little older than you. I was five, already a full-blown Star Wars nerd, reeling from the aftershocks of Return of the Jedi. I spent most of 84 zero, just going like colors and sounds. Weird. But we digress. I was digging the vibe of the trailer, but this wasn't like a high stakes film for me. There, there, it wasn't like there was like this huge first film it had to live up to. Although once the film was announced that it was definitely going to come out on Christmas Day on HBO Max and in select theaters, suddenly it was something I was very excited to watch. Some new comic book entertainment, some big screen comic book entertainment at the touch of our TV. Yeah, we're thirsty for it. Yeah, and so with that thirst comes a newfound excitement around the film. 
We were like two kids on Christmas morning. So we hit play and we get to see Wonder Woman's interpretation of kicking butt in 1984. And we feel some like latent skepticism bubble up in our bellies. Yeah, I mean, the first couple of sequences in Wonder Woman 1984, I was unsure if I was going to enjoy this film. Um, It is very much in a cartoonish reality. And by that, I mean, if you look at the background extras uh, and and you see it in the trailer, the the, the mall scene uh, shot at Landmark Mall, not too far from where we live. In fact, Wonder Woman 1984 is a huge love letter to Washington, D.C. And uh, yeah, I loved it as that. Yes. But the way all the background extras were acting, uh, it's so heightened and so like, uh, what, what I would call a Marvel crowd, you know, like mm-hmm. when you watch a Sam Raimi movie, the, the Spider-Man films, and the way the people on the bridge just go like, oh, my gosh, Spider-Man, the, the, their eyes are wide. Their expressions are like permanently wowed. Their expressions are as loud as their 80s clothes. Yeah. And so, it, you know, this is not a recognizable reality. And I was like a, like a little put off. Like it was even more extreme than the performances that we were getting out of Wonder Woman 2017. And Again, I'm not saying Gal Gadot here. I'm talking about the background people, the you know, the jazzercise lady, the hot dog on a stick guy. It was bordering on camp. Yeah, like Batman 66 camp, a version of that character that I adore. But is that what I want out of Wonder Woman 1984? I think we just were not emotionally prepared for that tone because I don't think like I think that there are camp elements in, like, say, Shazam, but it doesn't feel like Justice League. It doesn't feel like Wonder Woman 1. I feel like in the DC films, they are just not sure-footed with their tone. Yes. And there's this kind of lack of cohesion throughout that universe where, like, if you... Do a direct comparison to Marvel. And we are admittedly Marvel fan children. Yes. Um, It just just doesn't hold up. I mean, like, you want to go, where does Wonder Woman 1984 fit alongside Shazam, alongside... Batman v Superman, Dawn Aquaman. of Justice, Aquaman. Yeah, and 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 it just they don't feel like they're of one piece. But maybe that's on us. Mm. Maybe we need to let go and just take the film on its own terms. And I think that when the actual plot begins to kick off, uh it actually carries you, it cradles you into what this film is going to actually be, which retroactively for me forgives my initial alarm and repulsion. Okay, so I agree with you 100% on this because looking back now, I actually like the first couple of scenes in retrospect, like Mm -hmm. you're saying there. Mm -hmm. And there's a turning point in Wonder Woman 1984 where I am won over, and that is with the introduction, like the proper introduction. We have little hints of him during the opening credits, but the proper introduction of Maxwell Lord as played by Pedro Pascal. The way he's presented in the trailer is that he's this media mogul, like kind of like a Tony Robbins, but for oil somehow. And he is at introduction beyond 
cartoony in his greed and selfishness and his kind of debonair, suave smarminess. But his character arc kind of mirrors or runs parallel to the structure of the film where they give you this kind of blown out, super bright, over the top 80s presentation, but then it kind of hones down to the essence of what this film is about and it just gets you right in the feels. Yeah, Patty Jenkins is making a melodrama, right? In the best sense of the word. You know, Wonder Woman is a character of the gods. She's the daughter of Zeus and Hippolyta. And as such, she's operating on a stage. And the stage is filled with many seats And she's got to perform to the front row and she's got to perform to the back row, the cheap seats. And so it's a loud movie. But at the core of that movie, of that story, of that play is a profound truth. Yes. And the way that they deliver that truth is by going big, is by having actors like Pedro Pascal and Chris Pine and Kristen Wiig act to the heavens, act to Mount Olympus. And in acting big, they are, like you're saying, narrowing their focus, highlighting truth, universal truth. These are mythologies. These are Grimm's fairy tales. And this truth is brought out what I initially liked from the first movie. What resonated with me in the first movie, which made me go, I like this movie, was the theme and the idea, the thesis statement it presented about Wonder Woman. And that thesis statement is restated and underlined and highlighted by this film. Yeah, so she is a character that... Learn to love humanity through the self-sacrifice of one individual, Steve Trevor. Mm -hmm. And after his death, she is fighting for us because of him, right? So this film takes that initial impulse and, and propels her into how do we get Wonder Woman to fight for humanity for the love of us? Humans, And it gets all the more complicated when Steve Trevor returns and enters the 1980s. So this is when my heart began to go aflutter and I go like, am I loving this movie or do I just love Chris Pine? (laughs) He's... His fish out of water performance, you get a glimpse of it in the trailer. It's just him walking around looking at trash cans and it's the best. Yeah, but it's it's funny. It is definitely funny, but he also sells the awe of what it must be like for a guy who comes out of 1918 to 1984 and he sees the technological advancements of Mm -hmm. humanity. He's bowled over by it. And Pine plays that sincerely. But that's what you get when you cast a Chris Pine or a Pedro Pascal or a Kristen Wiig. Someone who can play the entire range of dynamics within a character. Right. And so when the film rides this wave and when these actors ride these performances that go 
catastrophically high, they are skyscraper performances, suddenly they can surprise you with that emotion. And when they do, that emotion cuts deep into the audience. And suddenly, like a movie that was, um, I thought, a lark and a cartoon has gutted me completely. Yeah, it's just the specificity of their nuances are... Um, they're cutting. Yeah. And so if you compare the antagonists of Wonder Woman 1984 to the antagonists of Wonder Woman 2017, the World War One movie, um, it's, again, your word, nuanced. It's much more complicated. Well, the, the villains from the first film, well, the greatest get- villain was a god. And his failing was his godliness. Yeah. I feel like I'm getting real close to the main theme that I do kind of want to... Hold back on. Hold back on. But uh, none of our villains have that issue, that godliness issue. Yeah. So, like, ultimately, my big takeaway from Wonder Woman 1984 is how deceptive it presents itself early on as this cartoon Mm -hmm. and it takes you to a place by the time we get into the third act that is very genuine and again you get to that authenticity by going high and broad and a lot of these like side characters do stay in that kind of like broad realm (laughs) and the background extras for sure like the way it portrays adults in the eight, like if I had been an adult in the eighties, my feelings would be hurt. Cause <laughs> it makes people from the eighties, uh, either totally naive yeah. or, uh, villainous. Yeah. I like, I can see somebody who really enjoyed the 2017 film coming out of wonder woman, 1984 and being disappointed or not engaging in its presentation. And I can't really fault you for it, but for me, it really worked. I came away going wonder woman, 1984 is superior to the original film, or Mm -hmm. at least elevates it. I think it does elevate the first film, but I think, Tonally, and through its melodramatic nature, speaks very much to what I want to see out of these characters, out of a character like Diana Prince. My tear ducts do not lie, and I was weeping at the end of this movie. But look at me getting all caught up in, like, universal themes and, like, I'm already talking about the emotional impact of the end of the movie. Some people might be in this, into this for the, like the kicky and the fighty. And we haven't even talked about that. I, I mean, I think the kicky and the fighty is pretty good. Uh, you know, the thing I was most excited about watching the trailer was the golden Eagle armor. Oh. And I think the movie delivers on that golden Eagle armor. Um, you know, it's like any modern uh, CGI superhero movie. There are bits that work better than others, mm-hmm. but the moments that work, work, well, you know, Diana riding lightning bolts, lassoing lightning bolts, that's fantastic. And what you see in the trailer, you get and you get more because it's a sequel. And as a sequel to a very successful film, it gets freedom to do things that the first film maybe was only hinting at. So this one really dives into the mythological abilities of Wonder Woman. And that's what I want to see out of a Wonder Woman movie. We have plenty 
of heroes that are super strong and are somewhat invulnerable. And that's what we got from the last film. In this film, we get to see what differentiates her, what makes her extraordinary, what makes her a god. Yeah, it's those ties to mythology that elevate her or at least differentiate her from Batman, Superman, The Flash. She doesn't want to be a a human. She loves humans. She is, but she's going to always be outside of humanity, looking in and being a guardian of us. Yeah, and I think that Wonder Woman 1984 really separates the character from what we've come to know of the DCEU and makes it a challenge to incorporate this Diana Prince with you know, the upcoming Snyder cut or whatever. But again, like, why am I getting all caught up in whether or not these characters can live on the screen together? I just need to enjoy and appreciate what I have here within this runtime. I think that if we knew in Iron Man 1 that there was going to be a Thor, we would have been like, Really? Because Iron Man is essentially just like, uh, yeah, like I, I'm working with science and building things. And we were nervous in 2011 before the release of Thor. And, and so much hung on the success of Thor to make the MCU work. But the difference between what the DCEU has done so far and what the MCU has done so far is the MCU has had a consistent Tone. Well, and I feel like DC has just tried to rush the scaffolding yeah. of the their universe. Rush the scaffolding, but also like they course correct all the time mm, tonally yes, and yes. vibe-wise. And sometimes they course correct into a lane that I dig, and sometimes they course correct into a lane I do not dig. Right now, the lane they're in with Wonder Woman 1984, I dig this. And you know, where it goes from here, I really, I got to stop bringing it up. You know, this is my fault. I brought it up here on my podcast. I just got to free myself of any kind of continuity with these characters right now. Let go of your expectations. We should be approaching all art with open hearts. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And the conversation around DC continuity is so old and tired. Like, (laughs) I'm, I'm bored of talking about it, but I can't let it go. I gotta let it go. My recommendation to anybody watching Wonder Woman 1984, whether they loved the first film or it didn't resonate with you like it didn't resonate with us, is just to... Shed those expectations. Just be ready to go on a ride. I think you should try to do that going into every film. But as geeks, that's very hard because we have preconceived notions of what these characters should be. But like dum-dums, we just like keep handing our money over <laughs> to to these films going like, we got a character that you love. And then we're like, you hurt our feelings. Uh, yeah. But like, what do we always say about Batman, right? Like every Batman is valid. We love Batman 66. We love Batman the Brave and the Bold and Batman the Animated Series. And guess what? We love uh, Batman v Superman Dawn of Justice. Yes. We Brad do. and Lisa, we are on that fam. We love Martha. It's the variety of interpretations that makes that character last for 80 years. And that character can survive a hit or two. 
So if you don't like Wonder Woman 1984, don't worry. Another Wonder Woman waits for you already. Allow us to recommend Daniel Warren Johnson's Wonder Woman Dead Earth. Though I would say that there are a lot of thematic ties between Wonder Woman 1984 and Dead Earth. I agree. Yeah. But totally, they are way different. All right, so I guess that's going to do it for this little mini spoiler-free review cast. I got to say, pretty hard to review something without digging into the spoilers. There's a lot there that I wanted to get into that I was resisting. Oh, well, maybe we should do after Christmas, we should do some kind of like follow up spoilery one on the Patreon. I'm down because like I said, I really enjoyed this film, Lisa. I'm looking forward to watching it again on Christmas. Yeah. So I imagine there are some of you listening who do not usually tune into our Patreon episodes. First, we want to say Welcome. Yeah, hello. If you've enjoyed our rambling and you want a little more CBCC content, consider throwing us a little jingle jangle. A dollar a month will get you an extra episode every week. We do episodes like Comically Real, which are sort of similar to this one, but more spoiler heavy, where we break down our favorite and not so favorite comic book adaptations. We also do Married to Singles, where we highlight some of our favorite single issue comics. And we have what's something called The Friendly Neighborhood, which is just an opportunity for Brad and Lisa to rant and rave about what's going on in their life. There are other Patreon levels You probably clicked a link to our Patreon page, so don't be shy, peruse around. But we totally understand it's not in everybody's budget, and we're happy to give you a little gift around the holidays. And you can always find us at comicbookcouplescounseling.com where we're doing our main show. We just dropped our best comics of 2020. Our final episode of the year is going to be on Matt Fraction and Chip Zdarsky's Sex Criminals. And guess what? We have a surprise present of an episode that we're going to drop on Christmas Day. Shh, don't tell anyone. Or tell everyone. We're a small operation. We Word of mouth is our thing. Yeah, yeah. Tell everyone. Scream it from the Twitter mountaintops. And once you've seen Wonder Woman 1984, let us know what you thought about it. Did you agree with us? Do you think we're numbskulls? Jump on over to our Twitter at CBCC Podcast. Let us know. And of course, if you're a dearly beloved or happily ever after, we want to see you in the spoilers Slack channel. Let's get into this movie. Don't tell us you think we're numbskulls, though. We are very (laughs) sensitive. Lisa, if they want to engage you with Wonder Woman 1984 talk outside of the CBCC podcast Slack channel or Twitter feed, where can our listeners find you online? I am only accepting words of affirmation (laughs) at Sidewalk Siren on Twitter and Instagram. Brad. Yeah. How can our listeners send words of affirmation to you? Uh, You can find me on all social medias at MouthDork. If you actually want to read some more thoughts about Wonder Woman 1984, you can find them over at filmschoolrejects.com. I've got a little essay there and probably a few more essays. I love this movie. I want to champion this movie. Just like Diana champions us. You are Diana. You have the lasso of truth. I told you the Amazons gave it to me. I never should have doubted you. So until next time, folks, keep your love tank full. And your psychic rapport open. Yeah, I still maintain that I am the Wonder Woman to your Steve Trevor, Lisa. And I can't argue with it. It's as if you have your golden lasso of truth wrapped around my waist. That's why the Amazons gave me the lasso. 
And speaking of uh, getting a little kinky, our next episode is about sex criminals. Yeah, Chip Zdarsky and Matt Fraction, they finally wrapped up their saga. And for our final episode of 2020, we're going to break it down and complete our series on sex criminals. I'm very excited about this. Lisa's already read the volume. And uh, I don't think she really loved it. I was disappointed in some aspects of it, and we'll get into it. But maybe in the conversation, you will discover that you actually loved it. Probably not. Oh, I'm okay. telling you, probably All right. not. Well, well, let's find out next week. Same bat time, same sex criminals channel. That's how the phrase goes. I think so. 69, dudes. That's 69 the issue number. dudes up top. Well, we hope you enjoyed this weird little double feature, this Christmas treat. Uh, please go find Ariel Basca at Ride the Omnibus. Uh, you can find her on Twitter at Omnibus Ride. So, my sweetheart. Yeah. It's time uh, to end this episode. Yeah. Wrap it up with a bow. Yeah. And where can our listeners send their words of affirmation to you? Uh, you can find me on all social medias at Mouthdork. If you have words of affirmation for our logo, you can send them to Aaron Prescott at A Cool Hand Fluke. And if you have some words of affirmation for our radical banner art, send them over to at Karen underscore X-Men fan. Lisa. Where can our listeners send their words of affirmation to you? I am always accepting words of affirmation, not just around the holidays, all year round, at Sidewalk Siren on Instagram and Twitter. If you'd like to spend more quality time with us, you can subscribe to us on Podbean, Spotify, Stitcher, YouTube, and iTunes. If you'd like to get exclusive, <laughs> you can join our Patreon, where you'll get more content, including weekly bonus episodes. If you'd like to reach out and touch us electronically, you can email the podcast, cbccpodcast at gmail.com. You can visit our website, comicbookcouplescounseling.com, or follow us on Instagram and Twitter at cbccpodcast. You can give us the gift of five stars on iTunes, and if you'd like to do an act of service, why not write a review of the show while you're there? We are fluent and receptive in all five love languages. It really warms our hearts and helps the pod. So happy holidays, Merry Christmas, happy anti-life day if you are on Apocalypse, and until next time, keep your love tank full. And your psychic rapport open. Yeah, I still maintain that I'm the Wonder Woman of this relationship, Lisa, and you're Steve Trevor. And I can't argue with it. And you guys will find out why by listening to this episode. And so uh, here's the transition sound. Doo-bee-dee-doo-ba. What? We're doing the outro now. They've already listened to the episode. Oh, I didn't get that. Okay.